This morning we will be reading from Matthew chapter 5. If you need a Bible to borrow or to take, feel free to grab one off the back table. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. We saw recently that Jesus opens his famous Sermon on the Mount by saying that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to possess a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That in order to enter the kingdom of God, you need a greater righteousness than what the religious professionals of his day believed you needed and taught and practiced. And now what Jesus is going to do in his amazing Sermon on the Mount is uh, he's getting into the thick of it now, and he's about to provide us with six examples, all with practical applications, six examples of what that greater righteousness actually looks like in everyday life. And the first, the first illustration, the first example that he wants to give us has to do with anger. Um... What do you think? Is, is, anger, is anger a good thing or is anger a bad thing? Or is it something else? I'll, I'll just, just for a few minutes, what do you think? Off the cuff remarks, is anger a good thing or a bad thing or is it something else, Caitlin? It's both. It's both. Um, because it can, it helps you be aware of what's going on huh. and not just push it off. Okay. Okay, so anger can make you aware of what's going on so that, you don't have, so that you don't push it off or put it off, but then how you deal with it is really important. Okay, so there's a lot of subtlety and complexity to what anger is. Yeah, would anybody disagree or, or maybe add to that? Is anger a bad thing, a good thing, something else? Yeah, Dan. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because now I don't have to say it, I don't have to focus on it too much later. Anger cannot inherently be a bad thing because even God gets angry. You don't want a God who does not get angry about the mess we've made of this world. We, we like to get angry ourselves when people mess up our stuff and our people, and we somehow think that God doesn't have the right to be angry. A holy, perfect, good, loving being doesn't have the right to be angry. You actually want a God who can get angry. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Any, any other thoughts before we begin? Yeah, Eileen. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Anger can motivate you to action. It, it's, 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 it's the fire in your belly that gets you up off of the couch to do something about what's going on. 
Yeah, and that applies to athletics, it applies to practicing as a musician, it, it applies to social justice and politics, it, it applies to defending somebody who can't defend himself or herself. Without that anger, uh, there, there's, there's no positive motivation to help. Excellent, yeah. Wow, okay, great. You guys are on the right track. I'm so glad that uh, I got some of your comments. You know, um, I am a human being who many times in my life, to make a reference back to Moses, has struck the rock. It's a phrase I like to use when um, I know that I've gone too far. Brian, you struck the rock. As a young pastor, and this wasn't the first time, unfortunately, I did this uh, in my life, but as a young pastor, I let my anger get away from me once in a congregational meeting. I, I, um, it was a very, I was one of several pastors, and uh, one of the younger ones, and, and we, uh, we had a very difficult season as a church. A lot of conflicts. There were a couple of lawsuits. There, there, a lot of conflict on the staff and, and a lot of unease in the congregation. Some very sad things had happened. And, uh, and naturally, a lot of criticism and some unfair criticism was placed on the senior pastor. So in a congregational meeting, after months of this season, uh, this tension taking place in our church, a congregational meeting, there was somebody in, in the congregation who is not intentionally, but in reality, antagonizing the senior pastor during the meeting and antagonizing the leadership. You know, kind of one of those everything is your fault type of, of attitudes. And, and after months of frustration, um, it all boiled over in me as I watched this person antagonize the senior pastor. And um, now you have to understand, my, my default superhero Alter ego is, is the self-appointed prophet against injustice man. Um, it's it, with Sicilian blood. So it's, it's kind of like the best of Martin Luther King Jr. meets the worst of Michael Corleone. No physical things happening, just a lot of, a lot of verbal stuff, a lot of yelling and, and, and accusing and... Uh, things like that. Um, anyway, at that moment, I lost it. And I stood up in front of the whole congregation and I unleashed on this poor brother, this dear soul for whom Christ died. Uh, I unleashed on him a torrent of fire and brimstone uh, that the entire church heard for a good three to five minutes. It was like an outer body experience. I, I was watching myself do this as, it were, as everyone's mouth just kind of dropped open and gaped open. And my best friend leaned to my brother and whispered in his ear, is this happening right now? It's kind of one of those moments. Um, I lost complete control of my anger and, and it, took me, it took me months to repair the damage in the congregation. There were a few people in that congregation who could never trust me again. You and I have got to address our anger. James said, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There are serious consequences to unmanaged, unchecked, suppressed anger. 
And I hope you're going to see today that the Bible shows us that we can transform our anger into something that's actually productive and redemptive. And I want to talk to you about the problem with anger. And Naturally, I want to talk to you about the response to anger, how we can respond to it. And then finally, I want to talk to you about the resolution of anger, meaning how anger gets satisfied. So the problem with anger, the response to it, and the resolution, the, the satisfaction of anger. Now, the problem with anger is, if you haven't noticed yet, that Anger can hide from view and still control your life. Now, it's important to talk just for a minute about what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount and other places when you hear him say, when you hear him utter this formula, you have heard that it was said, yada, yada, yada. And then he'll say, but I say to you, yada, yada, yada. Uh, just, this is what Jesus is doing when he makes when he makes that statement, because he's going to do it several times now in the sermon. He's stating how the scribes and Pharisees, according to the tradition of the rabbis, interpreted the law of Moses. And then with the second statement, he's clarifying the true intent of the law. So it's the author and maker of the law quoting how it was traditionally and incorrectly interpreted and then responding as the lawmaker himself with the true intent of the written law of Moses. For instance, what Jesus is really saying here is the rabbinic traditions kept the letter of the law, but my father and I are interested in keeping the spirit of the law. And so he says in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You shall not murder or you shall not kill, of course, is the sixth commandment, uh, Exodus chapter 20. And then when he says whoever murders will be liable to judgment, he's, he's paraphrasing Numbers chapter 35 verses 30 through 31, which talks about capital punishment as the consequence of murder in the civil society that was the nation of Israel. Now, you may be saying, well, what's the problem? I mean, Jesus is just quoting two passages of scripture. So, so why, is, why is he speaking against and contradicting uh, the Bible itself? Well, he's not doing that. He, here's the thing. Um, the old rabbis, um, those who would interpret the law and then teach the Jews, how to live according to the law. What he's saying they did was they conjoined two things in an inappropriate way. Uh, they put together the moral command not to murder with the civil application of what happens in society when you murder somebody. By taking these two laws and putting them together, they degraded the original intent of the sixth commandment. This is essentially what they did. They basically said something like this. If you speed on the highway, you're going to get a ticket, so don't speed on the highway. Well, it's true. You, you, you may get a ticket if you speed, but the intent of the speed laws are what? To protect the lives of the drivers around you. That's the heart of the law. So not speeding just because you're going to get a ticket. It, it does, it's just the surface. The heart of not speeding is 
protecting the lives of the people in the car with you, protecting the lives of your neighbors who are driving all around you. Jesus is about to show us here that doing God's will is not just about avoiding consequences. It is far deeper than that. And so he says, he goes on to say in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, now in the original language, it's basically whoever calls his brother a numbskull, an empty head. It's a derogatory remark. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That's the Sanhedrin. Whoever says, you fool. The word there for fool is where we get the word for moron. So the idea is to despise and hold contempt for another human being as though they are a lesser person, a lesser form of life than you are. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus, in three different ways, is basically saying the same thing. If your heart harbors anger that gives fuel to contempt, that gives fuel to hatred for another person or for another group of people, you're a lawbreaker. In God's courtroom, you're just as guilty as somebody who murders. Or as John Calvin would put it, Hatred and everything that is contrary to love is enough to expose people to eternal death, though they may have not committed acts of violence. The problem with anger is that it can simmer inside of you and control your responses to everything that's happening around you and navigate how you do relationships the problem with anger is that it can simmer inside of you even if you appear to be mostly righteous. In their excellent book, The Cry of the Soul, How Our Emotions Tell Us About the Nature of Our Relationship with God, um, Dan Allender and Tremper Longman, this was a couple of decades ago, but it's, it's an excellent book, and a lot of what I'm going to say about anger today comes out of their two excellent chapters on anger and how our anger can tell us something about how we're doing with our Creator. They define for us anger. They say anger is our response to an assault or our response to interference with our satisfaction according to the degree, whether it's more or less, of perceived injustice. The more we believe there has been an injustice committed, the more angry we become. And of course, anger, as some of you have already pointed out, anger can be very helpful. Anger, I think, is like a smoke detector. When it goes off, it's very unpleasant, but it tells you that there's a problem that you have to address, and it can even save your life. So think of anger like, like a smoke detector. And actually, Allender and Longman go on to write that God designed and blessed anger in order to energize our passion to destroy sin and injustice. And the greater the injustice, the more angry you ought to feel. But anger in the hands of sinners, anger in the hands and in the hearts of sinners is problematic, is dangerous, is lethal. And they go on to say, Allender and Longman, that unrighteous anger refuses to wait for God's justice. 
unrighteous anger demands for justice now at your own hands. Unrighteous anger is really what has been behind murder. Since, since, since Cain spilled the blood of his brother Abel, unrighteous anger has caused murder and some wars and all oppression and breakups and lawsuits and family feuds and really ugly congregational meetings. Um, so it's critical that you and I manage our anger, not stuff it, not ignore it, not deny it, not rejoice in it. It's critical that we manage our anger well and, and address any hidden hatred or contempt that is simmering in you against another person or another group of people. So what solutions do we have? What, what, what do you have that you can turn to to practically manage the anger inside of you? Well, I think the best response to anger is meditation that leads to peacemaking. The Bible offers us uh, abundant illustrations and wisdom on meditation that leads to peacemaking. For example, just read the Psalms. I tell people, read the Psalms as often as you can. Uh, yes, they are tools for prayer. Yes, they are tools for learning how to worship God and respond to Him. But listen, the Psalms are full, like loaded with examples of believers managing their anger. Believers who believed and felt that they had been assaulted, that injustices had been committed against them, and taking that anger and managing it in the presence of a holy and righteous and loving and just God. So for instance, King David, David said in Psalm 4, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. That's amazing. Because you see there that, that you manage your anger well by meditating on more than what's angering you. Not just focusing on the anger and the object of your anger, but focusing on more than that. Pondering what? Pondering the goodness of God in silent trust. When you look at what David's saying here, that, that's meditation. That's taking your anger to God in the process of meditation. We talk about meditation every summer when we look at the Psalms, right? It's, it's chewing on, it's regurgitating the truth you discover about God and letting it, letting it simmer in your thoughts, letting it simmer in your inner being so that you find peace and can live out of that peace. Pondering the goodness of God in silent trust is meditation. Now, now, what did the Beatitudes teach us when we looked at the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? What did the Beatitudes teach us about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? They become merciful people. They become peacemakers. And this is exactly how Jesus applies the situation. Look at what he does in verses 23 and 24. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now think about this. 
Jesus was speaking off the shore of the Sea of Galilee, somewhere between Capernaum and Chorazin. So the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, you realize that's almost 80 miles north of where the altar is in the temple in Jerusalem. He's talking to people who are 80 miles north of where the altar is. Some of them lived further away than that from the temple altar. Actually, I looked into it. It's a three to five day journey on foot for the people who were listening to Jesus, depending on how you went, three to five day walking journey. Today, you could make the distance in two hours in an automobile. Now, you don't have to take Jesus literalistically there to get his point. We cannot pretend to be right with God when we're at war with our neighbor, with our brother, with our sister in the faith. We cannot pretend to worship God outwardly with acts of righteousness when inwardly we are harboring hurt, when inwardly we know that people have an issue with us, when inwardly we know that we have an issue with somebody else. Because in another place in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus takes this idea and he turns it on his head. Whether somebody's got an issue with you or whether you've got an issue with somebody, Jesus says, make the priority, not the act of religion. Make the priority, the condition of your heart and go and make things right. Then come to me with your worship and with your offerings. He goes on and shares a second application. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. So, so now it's not simply a personal conflict that you're thinking about while you're in worship or while you're doing Christian-like things. Now he's talking about a civil debate, a problem that requires the adjudication of the civil authorities or people who are responsible to oversee you both, whatever the situation may be. He goes, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, there he goes again with that, I say to you. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The last cent. He offers us another illustration making the same point. Make resolving conflict your priority. Or as the Apostle Paul put it in his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, don't let the sun go down on your anger. When Becky and I were newlyweds, we took this literalistically, and um, we thought this meant you don't go to sleep before you resolve an argument that you're having with one another. You do everything you can to make things right before you go to bed. And, and if you're not married and haven't experienced this dilemma, you don't stop texting until you've resolved your conflict with the other person. Have you ever been lying in bed late at night, maybe one in the morning, pouring your soul out to the person lying next to you, talking about the injustices of what they have said and done to you, and discover when you look over that they have fallen fast asleep? It's even better when you're pouring your heart out and you begin to hear the snoring. And then in your, in your self-imposed righteous anger, you turn to the other person and wake them up 
to let them know the injustice they have committed against you by not hearing you out regarding how you have been hurt by them. And now they are angry because you've woken them up in the middle of the night. What Paul is really saying here is, don't let your anger have the last word. It doesn't mean you keep on talking. It doesn't mean you keep on fighting. It doesn't mean you keep on texting. It doesn't mean you keep on swinging. But it does mean don't let your anger have the last word. Instead of pouring your anger out on your neighbor, pour your anger out on God. Meditate on his goodness and try again later. Before later comes, you've got work to do with your creator, which is why David says, be silent on your beds, ponder, and trust in the Lord. Notice how Jesus is turning us away from the negative aspect of keeping God's law, don't commit murder, don't do bad things, to the positive aspect of keeping God's law, pursue peace. Be a peacemaker. Meditate on the goodness of God. We don't simply avoid the temptation to despise people and hate them and belittle them. We actively pursue peace. Something's got to replace the negative focus of your anger. You need a positive focus as an antidote to anger brooding into contempt, which becomes hate. Righteous anger, righteous anger, transformed by meditation, allows you to move towards another person. So be a peacemaker. This is what we do with our anger. By the grace of God, we become peacemakers. We do more than stuff our anger, we pursue peace. Don't don't let religion distract you from pursuing righteousness in your heart. And religion just doesn't have to be churchy type things. Religion is anything you do to try and justify yourself in God's sight, most of all, but even just in the opinions of others, maybe even your own opinion of yourself. Don't let religion distract you from pursuing the greater righteousness that Jesus offers you and says you need to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And to illustrate that this was a real problem with the scribes and the Pharisees and what people were learning from them, Jesus would later in his ministry offer a parable. You can find it in Luke chapter 18. He basically, I'll summarize it. He basically says, a Pharisee and a tax collector walk into a temple. It's not, he's not setting them up for a joke. Um, it would make a good joke, I think. But he, he doesn't do that. But he basically says, uh, there's, there's this Pharisee in the temple and, and, and there's a tax collector in the temple and they're both praying to God. Very different prayers. And he says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Wow. You see what he's doing here? You see what he's showing us? In the Pharisee's mind, the comparison he was making with another human being was based on outward actions. 
You see, we play at religion. We're playing around with religion while we're murdering people in our hearts. Now, you may be thinking, well, what about a legitimate grievance? Because all of us, and some of you far more than I have, have have endured injustice, have endured assault. And you may be thinking, don't I have a right to be angry? And I would say to you, friend, yes, you do have a right to be angry. But unless you surrender your anger to God, it will destroy you. It will hurt others. The Apostle James, in his letter, James chapter 4, said, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? It's one thing to be angry and rightly angry. And it's another thing to get in God's judgment seat and pronounce condemnation on another human being. Harboring unchecked anger, which leads to contempt, which leads to hatred, it, it puts you in the judge's seat. And the, thing, the problem with that is that you are completely unfit to sit in the judgment seat. You're not fit to sit in the judgment seat. You, are not moral, you, you do not have the moral integrity to sit in the judgment seat. You do not have the collective wisdom to adjudicate in the judgment seat. You do not have the resources and the power to rightly resolve whatever the problem is. And so judging others will leave you unsatisfied. Allender and Longman go on to write that unrighteous anger draws our deepest desires to the surface and leaves us even emptier than we were before. Your anger, my anger, desperately needs to be satisfied. Our anger desperately needs the resolution that only God can provide. Allender and Longman continue to write. They say, what we encounter when we rage against God, rage against others, is actually not what we expect. We expect judgment, the very thing we're doling out to other people. We expect God to judge us, but they write, instead, his glorious, perfect son bears the wrath we deserve. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the author of the moral law, became a human being. He became the Son of Man, and he kept the law perfectly. The lawmaker became the perfect, ultimate law keeper. And he absorbed the consequences of all the law breaking that we have ever and are and will ever commit against a righteous God. And the Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And Paul went on to say, for our sake, 
God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's not, that's not an analogy. That's not a metaphor. Literally, the gospel tells us that by being reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we become God's righteousness. That's what's so important about the gospel, that you receive as a gift the righteousness of Christ that is far greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, far greater than any kind of self-righteousness you or I could ever cook up for ourselves. Jesus took our unrighteous, our unrighteous, mismanaged rage and contempt and hatred. He took it all to the cross with him. And Paul tells us in another place, he killed it there. He killed the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, between blacks and whites, between millennials and baby boomers, between Republicans and Democrats, whatever, brothers and sisters, estranged spouses. He killed the hostility on the cross. He absorbed, this is how he did it. He absorbed upon himself the full righteous anger of God for all the sin and hatred and murder and injustice and oppression ever committed. This is the only source of satisfaction that an angry person will ever find. The pastor in D.C., uh, pastor and author, uh, Tabidi Anyawile, he likes to say this when people ask him, how are you doing? You know, the salutation, how are you doing? And he likes to say, better than my sins deserve. And I try that every once in a while. I believe it. So you, some of you heard me say it. I'm doing better than my sins deserve. And typically people just kind of go, like, look at you like you're a weirdo, like, Okay, don't want to go there with this guy. <laughs> Most people don't bite. Um, but somebody wants to actually respect, somebody once did bite and said, why do you say that? Why do you say you're doing better than your sins deserve? You're a good person. You deserve a good life. Don't beat yourself up. Don't say that about yourself. He was so uncomfortable that I believed I was doing far better than my sins deserve. <laughs> but this is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. If you know that you are poor in spirit, if you know that you are poor in spirit, that is the best antidote to the toxicity of unchecked anger. And so in Christ, with his righteousness, knowing that God, does, God was right to judge you, and he did not. And he reconciled them to yourself and gave you the beautiful gift of the righteousness of his son. Knowing that now, I don't, I don't have to rush into judging other people, no matter what they've done to me. I don't have to despise people who I don't trust, who are different than me. I don't have to hate. I don't have to murder people in my heart day after day. But rather, by the grace of God, in the peace and forgiveness of my Savior, who has reconciled me to his heavenly father, I can wait for the righteousness of God. I can deal with my anger. I can pursue justice. 
but I can wait for God's righteous anger to judge all human sin. And I can, I can hate sin and still love the people who hurt me at the same time. The grace of God and nothing else transforms our anger into something that is productive and even redemptive. Because what has changed people in history more than most things is to see people who have been hurt forgiving their enemies. Because that's what God did on the cross. So as we ourselves received his gift of forgiveness and reconciliation and peace, we grow. We grow and mature as his meek peacemakers who are merciful in all our relationships. So in your anger, meditate on the goodness of God and pursue peace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you. We are shocked. We are even uh, sometimes embarrassed, but teach us how to rejoice in the fact that you did not treat us as our sins deserve. You know we are dust, and you do not count our sins against us. Thank you, Father, that you were angry enough that you sent your Son to woo us back to you in love. Thank you that Jesus was angry enough with death and sin and the devil to die in our place. Father, may we now in his name be angry but not sin. And in our anger, may we meditate on your goodness and your grace and so become your merciful, meek, blessed peacemakers and act like sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. Amen.